0: can save some real money on Princeton University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Today is February 11th, 2022, and I'm here today with Mary Norris, former copy editor at The New Yorker and the author of two wonderful books, Between You and Me and Greek to Me. And she might well be known to the audience as the Comma Queen, which I think is a richly deserved uh, title. And we have the chance today to talk about where these books came from and uh, what they mean to her. Because they, from my point of view, mean a great deal. And I think it's important for the audience to get a chance to hear an author talk about uh, the inspiration for a book as well as, 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 well as its contents and uh, themes. So let me just jump in, Mary, after saying thank you for doing this uh, for me. It's um, not the easiest thing in the world to sit down and talk to someone over a uh, Zoom platform type thing for uh, half an hour or an hour, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do that uh, today.
1: Well, it's my pleasure, Bill. Thank you for having me.
0: Now. This this book, Between You and Me, is just wonderful, mostly because I cringe in the way that you describe in the book when people who claim to be uh, well-read and intelligent, posers mostly, will talk about Between You and I, and they do it with a way of suggesting that they're on the inside. They know the right way to do it. The rest of us are dummies. Um, how often have you actually heard this? Uh, uh, I guess it would be a neo 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 It's called is that
1: what a solipsism.
0: It's a solipsism. So, oh, solipsism. Okay. What's the one that? Right. Uh, what's the one that begins with an N? Neo. Actually, <clears throat> I should have my dictionary up, but I don't.
1: No, I so anyway, think. So is this
0: something you ran into a lot?
1: Yes, Um constantly. Some of my best friends say between you and I, or. um Uh, don't put a plate of cherry, don't put a bowl of cherries in front of Ronnie and I and I want to grab back the cherries, you know. Um, it's. uh, But when it's something, it always bothers me, Uh, you know, it always makes me grit my teeth, but I've stopped correcting people because I prefer to stay friends with people. (laughs) And also when it's in conversation, it's it's forgivable you know people say things if you're going to write them down commit them to print then you want to get it right i think
0: well maybe i'm, I'm asking too delicate a question but people at the new yorker they didn't do that did they say between no. you and i
1: oh well, actually there is one person in quite a high oh we must position. have names an <laughs> i will never say i won't i won't betray him, but he has actually put in emails to, you know, office, inter-office emails and things. He's he's gotten that wrong. And I think, Ooh, how have you gotten so far without learning this? <laughs> I, um, the title of the book, Between You and Me, was actually suggested by my agent. And uh, we I liked it immediately. I liked it for the double meaning... <laughs> you know, the confidential aspect of just between you and me and the idea that just looking at the title might give a person, might might help bring it across that it's between you and me and not between you and I. But I don't know that I've included so far in that. Oh, but it goes further.
0: Person- You're a little um, dedication for you and you and you. That's wonderful.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
0: Thank um- you. You were talking it, about I'm sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I was just going to say if you really want to know the inspiration for the book, it I was at The New Yorker, you know, I'd been on the copy desk at The New Yorker doing various jobs. Um, the last one was called page OKing. It was also called query Proofreading or it's sometimes called being a production editor. Anyway, I'd been doing this job for years and years, although what I really wanted to do was be a writer. So always I had a manuscript in my desk drawer and I had some success writing for Talk of the Town, but not a lot. I would say, you know, certainly I wasn't, I couldn't live on what I earned as a writer. That would be about $800 a year. (laughs) So it was just after the New Yorker started Developing its website, that one of the young editors on the site came to me and asked if I would write something about commas for the blog, because um, a writer named Benya Goda
0: had mm-hmm. called
1: commas nutty, and at the time I just didn't really want to write about commas. I, you know, I had written a memoir, I'd written a novel, things that were unpublished. I had written a blog about. Parking on the Street in New York, Alternate Side Parking Reader. And I I thought all these things were more interesting than punctuation. But we had been insulted, (laughs) and somebody had to defend the New Yorker comma. And it was obviously going to have to be me, because I was the only one on the copy desk who had a little bit of a track record as a writer. And I owned the comma shaker, uh, one of our story (laughs) (laughs) proofreaders. Um, nice. So okay. I wrote this thing called In Defense of Nutty Commas. It went up on the blog, and it went viral, if we can still use that expression. And then the editors wanted other pieces. They wanted more. I had no idea there was such an interest in what went on behind the scenes at the New Yorker. Well, copy editing is a silent, invisible job.
0: And... Well, but at the same time, you knew that people were interested in the New Yorker personalities because there have been, how to know, half a dozen books about the New Yorker and what goes on over there.
1: This is true, yes. I Of course, I, I did know that. But, you know, whoops, there's the cat. When I. I don't know. I guess the New Yorker personalities who wrote a lot of um, the, all the New Yorker memoirs were by famous writers, right? They weren't mm-hmm. by the, you know, a fact checker or a copy mm-hmm. editor. So we were used to being behind the scenes and frankly we liked it. <laughs> we preferred to be behind the scenes. A copy editor who draws attention to herself is just asking for it, you know? People will look for mistakes in anything you write. And they'll find them because they're there. We all make mistakes. Um, Oh, that a little further. After I wrote a few of those columns and I, you know, had it in I already had I was in touch with an agent who had formerly worked with the New Yorker. He had turned down a proposal for something else. I got back in touch with him and said, do you think there'd be any interest in a book on pencils and punctuation? And it did, as they say, check off the boxes well, you must so, have said,
0: would you be interested in a humorous book? Because the book is just laced throughout with wit. It's a very funny okay. book. And the, the, the critics noticed that.
1: <laughs> well, yes, it was a finalist for the Thurber Prize in American humor. So I, I am delighted that people think it's a funny book because I always, as a writer, wanted to entertain and make people laugh. From well, the, the very I, beginning. I bring
0: it up... <clears throat> the reason I bring it up is that uh, the, the width, the humor, it uh, is undergirding this kind of uh, casual approach almost to punctuation because the bottom line is, if it works, use it. If it doesn't work, then don't use it. There's nothing, uh, you're not a disciplinarian is what I'm saying.
1: Right. Oh, thank you. Yes.
0: <laughs>
1: um, and you know, the book is written. It's not It's not a style guide. It's a, a book that was I had a lot of help, input from the editor of the book, a genius of an editor named Matt Weiland at WW Norton, who helped me develop it because I could write things that were eight hundred thousand, twelve hundred words, but I didn't know how to shape a whole chapter and make it lead into the next chapter. <clears throat> So well, we wanted a book that was, you know, I, I'd seen lots of books about language that you can just dip into, read a bit, and then set aside. But we wanted a book that you could start at the beginning and read through to the end.
0: Well, you had to make this decision early on about um, the approach because you had lots of competition. And I'm holding up now my uh, guidebook, Modern English Usage by Fowler. You have three or four other pretty good books. I like, for instance, the Kingsley Amos book, The King's English, I find very useful. I don't know if you've uh, worked with this one. Uh, And there are a few others that I'm not a fan of Brian Garner, so I'm a little surprised that you mentioned him in your book. Uh, But the point is that there are some good style guides out there. So when you decided to write uh, your book, you had to be aware that you didn't want to just go over the same ground as these people did. And I assume that's where the humor or the point of view is perhaps the better way of putting it the point of view came in?
1: The point of view came in first. Well, I mean, I was a writer before I was a copy editor. And I I, I guess the, they, the editors were interested in such a book because it came from my point of view. I figured out when I tried to write, say, a bit about pencils, um, I went to this pencil in New York. I have one of these pencils right in my hands right now, a black wing. And um, I started writing about it just as as a talk story, you know, went to a party. There was a guy in a suit that was the color of a pencil, pencil lead. And it was just dead on the page. And, you know, I woke up like at three in the morning what, one day and, and just went at it from my own point of view and decided to get rid of this idea of a formal talk story and just write about it from with my own voice. I can't write in anybody else's voice anyway, but from my own logic is is how it worked out. And there is nothing um, to recommend my work except my voice, I think. You know, I mean, It's what is unique about the work. Um, Well, it's that plus the vast
0: (laughs) uh, uh, experience that you have, all the different uh, things that crop up uh, repeatedly that call for interpretation. When it comes to pencils, I want you, if you could, to explain something to me. What is a blue pencil editor? Isn't that a phrase that goes with being a copy editor? Blue pencil?
1: Um, You know, I can't tell you exactly. There are... Red pencils and there are blue pencils. I think a blue pencil editor is probably somebody who um, does line editing, which is different from copy editing. Mm-hmm. Copy editing is just making small changes to make uh, the style of a piece conform to a larger style at a magazine or a book publishing entity. That, that's probably your red pencil editor, but the blue pencil editor is suggesting more interpretive changes.
0: Okay. Well, one of the things that you um, must have thought about quite a bit was how much of the New Yorker culture you wanted to, I don't know, reveal or just discuss, because to give life to the points of punctuation that you're making, part of the discussions of the hyphen or whatever it is that you're talking about, You use examples from your own work. That is to say, the copy editing that you were doing at the New Yorker. Did you have to ask people if it was okay to talk about something that came up involving their prose? Hmm.
1: I think, well, one thing that I was aware of from the beginning while writing this book was there was no necessity to make up any sentences, either good ones or bad ones, because there were plenty of sentences available all the time. I didn't have to make anything up. And uh, at the, I also realized early on that I didn't need to ridicule or make fun of anyone or say any bad things because there was plenty to praise. There was plenty to be appreciative of. So And I, you know, I didn't want to say anything bad about it. I'm so sorry. My cat is busting around now. (laughs) He gets playful. Um, I can't lock him up either. So, but he did just make me lose my train of thought. The the person who, the only person I can think of who I needed to ask permission from was not actually at the New Yorker, but it was um, James Salter.
0: Oh sure I've read his books.
1: commas I, I, I disagreed with, but came to the realization that you know there are these two approaches to punctuation. one is by ear and one is by grammatical logic. And at The New Yorker we're into the grammatical logic, the underpinnings of syntax that it, you know, that's what punctuation is supposed to do. It's supposed to, Enhance the shape of the sentence and the paragraph, etc., just to show you what's going on if you can't figure it out. The writing, the the main thing really is word order. If the words are in the right order, the reader will be able to get it. But the New Yorker is all about helping the writer (laughs) along, keeping things perfectly clear. And then there are the more, I I think of them as a rather or I did think of them as the more arrogant writers who just think that they should do it by ear, the way Charles Dickens did. And they're none of them Charles Dickens, by the way, <laughs> but I've come to the realization, thanks to James Salter, and also thanks to um, Richard Ford, sure, that the best, the best thing is a combination of the two approaches. You know, you have your principles that you stick to when you're copy editing or when you're writing, and you you but and you use proper punctuation. But there are also times when you just really need to throw in a comma, <laughs> just to make sure that something has your cadence.
0: What about the relationship between uh, punctuation? We we're talking about that, but but the bigger point about style: um, does the copy editor have any input on? A writer's style what I'm thinking of is this <clears throat> I saw a wonderful interview <clears throat> with uh, John uh, Updike towards the end of his career and he was being kind of pressed by the interviewer and he said yeah I get it I know I write over the top sometimes I, I get what they're complaining about these critics when it comes to my style I get it but the same time what he was saying but not saying is but I'm never going to change because this is what I do this is what makes me who I am I'll die for my sentences is what he was saying <laughs> So I was wondering, do you ever get to that point with someone like him where you make a suggestion of, well, maybe there's just one too many adjectives in this sentence? Can you pare it down? Or is that something that is the general editor's uh, responsibility as opposed to a copy editor?
1: Well, there are various layers of copy editing, levels of copy editing. When I refer to style in the context of copy editing, I'm talking about how style Talking about nothing interpretive, but just the way that we spell dialogue with a ue on the end or catalog. Okay. So spelling preferences and the introductory comma and the serial comma, which is crazily controversial <laughs> um, and shouldn't be. But as far as a writer's, as John Updike's style, you know, when I re- copy edited John Updike, I didn't dare. I would not dare question things. I mean, I'd fix his spelling. I caught him once he spelt Michelangelo wrong, you know, and that's about the (laughs) worst thing that that I could say about John Updike. If his style was sometimes florid and over the top, that was his style. No, we wouldn't touch that. If the only thing that I I did once have to sub for somebody who was uh, Updike's editor, um, and she was actually the Query proofreader and the query, the okayer, that job that I did aspire to and reach at last. You are allowed to bring things up then, but you have to be so tactful. Right? Anne was very tactful. You don't say, we have a problem here or anything that will put somebody on the defensive. Those great writers like Updike and McPhee, they want to know, they want to know what we're thinking because they want to be in, you know, they, they know what they are, they know what they could do, but they also know that things sneak through and they don't want things to be unclear and they want a response. They're they're very attentive to copy editors' remarks and suggestions. What,
0: what, caught, what caught my eye was the uh, reference you make it a couple of times, I think, in the books about how some of the writers would send in immaculate, was the word you use immaculate copy. Which almost I certainly have never given any editor a immaculate copy, never ever. Um, it's almost a, a a warning: do not touch this.
1: Yes, well, it's been gone over. Um, like John McPhee and John Updike, especially were attentive to detail, and not all writers are that attentive. And actually, they were more. Well, I don't know, I love reading, you know, I got paid to read John McPhee, to read John Updike, nobody is going to complain about that. But I would get a little more of a workout reading um, John Seabrook, say, who is a very good writer, but who leaves enough for the copy editor to help him with. It's just more fun, you know, I mean, it engages the copy editor, and he is also very appreciative of help in Making his sentences clearer. Now, some writers they really don't want anything improved. They think it's fine the way it is, and they can be a little defensive about it. And my policy was always to make if something really bothered me, I'd requery, and if they still wouldn't change it, I'd try one more time, and then after three times, it was it's you know their name on the piece, and I would back off.
0: I run into people sometimes who. Uh define themselves by their uh, prose styles. They uh, know that they have the gift and they're going to let you know it and they're going to adopt a superior attitude and nothing will ever change that because this idea of of a good prose style is for them the the core of their being. It matters more than anything. Were there a lot of people at the New Yorker in the hallways with attitudes like that, that they, they knew that they were great writers and that was what for them defined who they were.
1: Well, Maybe I it's the part I run in, I
0: don't know, but... <laughs>
1: there were a lot of people, you know, obviously, if they're writers, professional writers, as opposed to dabblers, amateurs, they are, they have a lot invested in in being a writer. But it's also, in another sense, it's just a job, you know. And at the level of journalism, I mean... Again, I'm going to fall back on John McPhee, that he is somebody who, um, you know, his prose is, is art, it's, it's literature, it's more than journalism. So he, you know, he rose, why can't I say this right? He rose the level, he raised the level <laughs> of, of prose to an art with his work, but he's not precious about it.
0: That's a very good word that you used, because every time I've watched, I don't know, 10 or 15 John Updike interviews, and that's the word that comes across to me, that he is precious about his writing, that he believes, I think, that he's the only one who can do what he does. Maybe he is, but he was an extraordinarily gifted writer. And I think it gave him a sense that said, I can do this, and in a way, character doesn't matter in my novel's plot. I don't really care about that. (laughs) I'll give you a rapid story from beginning to end, but I don't really care about novels and their plots. I just want to give you these sentences that only I can give you. That might be too harsh, but that's the way he comes across to me.
1: Hmm. Well, but speaking of John ready. McPhee,
0: let me just throw this in too. John McPhee changed my life because I was fifteen, wow. I think, fifteen years old when he came out with A Sense of Where You Are, the first book in The New Yorker, or the first article that was turned into a book about Bill Bradley. At the time, I was a high school basketball player or junior high school, whatever it was. And he was able to show me things about basketball that I never knew existed. But he also showed this connection between literature, the word, the sentence, the paragraph, and what I was so obsessed with. Uh, (laughs) There was something about his ability. He just put his fist right in there and just got right to the heart of it. And he put it on the page. And I don't think anyone had ever seen anything like it, where he was writing about this college senior practicing where he wouldn't, he would take, uh, different spots on the court and he would take, uh, he had to hit 10 out of 13 shots before he moved to the next spot in his, his, uh, his circle of, of shots. Now, I don't think anyone ever heard, read about something like that, but he was able to, to get it is what I'm saying. I mean, he was just very, very receptive to the idea that there was a world outside of his and he could describe it with his, uh, his own literary gifts. I'm not describing it very well, but it just, it changed my life. It really did.
1: Wonderful. What I always loved about McPhee, what I loved in the beginning, I think the first thing I read was coming into the country, which is pretty late. And I was in graduate school. I did not grow up reading The New Yorker. I came to it rather late. Uh, But what I loved about McPhee is he keeps himself in the background. You know, he really gives gives the, um, everything to the subject of the prose and he uses everything that he has. But he's not somebody who is navel-gazing all the time. You know, he just really gets across information. It's run through his sensibility without him being in the foreground. So he's like a filter. I love that about him, that there's not a lot of detail about uh, what his wife made him for lunch that day or <laughs> anything like that.
0: I got the idea that he was easy to work with when it came to the editing process, was he?
1: He was and is a dream, yes. First of all, the copy is immaculate, you know, and so you're getting paid to read it. And if you find something that you think is... um. I don't you can g- give him things. For instance, I once suggested because I I don't know how I knew this, but when he referred to somebody from Manchester, I had just learned that the word for someone from Manchester was Mancunian. Mm-hmm. So on the in the margins I was able to to write would you like Mancunian? And he later wrote in his book, um, draft number four, that it was as if I had handed him a gold coin. He loved the word and he loves those words known as demonyms that are words for denizens of a place. And so that was when our friendship really began, was when we started trading (laughs) demonyms.
0: Well, you seem to have had an effect on certain writers for sure. I'm looking at this, uh, page 37, talking about uh, Philip Roth, who says, who is this woman, referring to you, of course, and will she come live with me? (laughs) You must have been pretty excited when you wrote that little uh, anecdote. And then, of course, he ran into trouble. So how do you feel about that now?
1: (laughs) Oh, well, good point. I don't really, I think that Philip Roth is, you know, Philip Roth's work is going to transcend the, Trouble he ran into over his biographer, if that's what you're talking about. Yes, um, but that bit barely made it into the book. When they were doing the publicity, the promotion for Between You and Me, you know, the people at the publishing house kept writing about how I'd edited you know, John McPhee. No, I mean they they kept mentioning John Updike, and of course I I'd, I'd read and and worked a little bit with Updike, but the person I loved working. Work, whose work I loved working on was Philip Roth, and if they were going to mention anybody at that of that status, let it be Roth instead of Uptight for me. So they finally said, "Well, the editor and I kept changing that in the promotional copy from John Uptight to Philip Roth." And the editor finally said, "Well, can you give us an example of um, something you will call Philip Roth?" And that's when I wrote. I wrote it on a bus. That little mem remembrance of what he wrote on the proof um, who is this woman and will she come live with me what elicited that I have never known for sure because he never talked to me never addressed it but and I didn't follow up on the proposition um, (laughs) it was just that he liked that I didn't do anything and I found one teeny tiny mistake and he thought I would make I think he thought I would make a pretty good housekeeper (laughs) which would
0: um, not have been true. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, I have to ask this, this question of, were you surprised when the book became a bestseller? I'm sure modesty will yes. make you say in part, yes, of course I was surprised. But you must have known that you, you were on to something. If people wanted to, you mentioned this earlier, people wanted, there's almost this insati- insatiable desire to know more about um, writing the process, the people.
1: But I really didn't know. I, I really had no idea that my day job would turn out to be my subject. You know, I, I was surprised that it was generally popular. I was a little worried because, of course, the editors and the agents would be interested in this because that's their job, too, was words and books. But when it became popular with the general public that did surprise me but then i realized that everybody is invested in the language every you know it's all our language and everybody feels it very privately and personally that it's it's my language and has opinions about it so i think that's part of the reason for its popularity that and i guess the new yorker mystique and i hope that it's, it it adds value as entertainment
0: too. Were the uh, publishers surprised to the extent that it was a big bestseller?
1: Um, well, let's see. The editor called me and was delighted. You never know. You know, publishing is such a gamble. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you never. I don't. They're always taking a chance, and um, and of course they were delighted. I don't think they were surprised because that's what they hoped for. Mm -hmm. Of course, is that kind of success. What I was disappointed in, I mean, we're talking a lot about uh, Between You and Me and less about the Greek book. I was disappointed that the Greek book didn't do as well as the um, other book, the the first book, but people seem to be a little Americans,
0: are scared. You've uh, stepped on my transition because (laughs) I was just going to say or ask you that one of the things that the success of the first book did was create this enormous, I imagine, enormous pressure on you to come up with a good subject for a second book. Because you had reached an audience and they wanted to know more and you had to decide, well, what do, you, what do I think they want to know about now? And I think it's a wonderful book, by the way. I think it's an absolutely, um, as candid a book as you can get about uh, a person's life in a way. Because what you were saying, if I understand this correctly, is that this language, this country changed your life.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, you know, what happened uh, um, was that I had at part of my contract with Norton was they had an option on a second book.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the way publishing works is they want to leap on it, you know, and get those readers of your first book and have one ready for them. And I had actually been talking with my editor about writing a book about boats. <laughs> um, and And the agent wanted, you know, you have to, despite the editor and I having an idea for a book, it has to go through the agent. And if the agent thinks it won't sell or that I don't know enough about boats to write a book about it, he can put the kibosh on it, which he did. (laughs) So then we were fishing around for another idea and it was my editor's idea because to write, a, he said, I remember we were we had just done an event and we were in a little bar up in the neighborhood of Columbia University. And he said, Would you like to write a book about Greek? And I just, would I? The title came <laughs> to me immediately. It's, it's not a, an original title. I, under, I understand that. Originally, though, I did have a comma in it and it was going to be Greek, comma to me. <laughs> but it was the first thing he edited out. Um, but the reason that he thought of it was that in the first book, you know, I was studying Greek for a lot of the time that I was a copy editor at the New Yorker, and they ended up paying for me to study Greek because I made the case that it made me a better copy editor. And, you know, studying any foreign language will make you understand your own language better. And while I was, so, you know, I had a lot of examples of, of etymology, how etymology helps spelling. And so many, many English words were made up out of Greek or came to us directly from the Greek, or maybe not directly, um, real, uh, what would you call them, people, philologists will will say it comes through Latin, and they must know what they're talking about. But I skipped Latin, so I <laughs> I just go back to the deep roots in the Greek. Um I, while I was working on the first book and I was under debt, pressure of deadline, I was invited to Greece to go on a press tour and I couldn't turn it down, although I should have been home writing, working on the grammar book. So while I was in Greece that time, I to make up for it, every day I wrote a little something about the Greek alphabet with the idea of getting it into the, the book about the New Yorker. So I'd written quite a lot of this stuff. And of course, it all ended up on the cutting room floor. And that's one of the things that gave Matt the idea that I could write a book about Greek because I already had a start on it. Those things turned out not, very few of them made it into the the book in the end, because now it was a very hard book to write. The first book, You know, that thing that they say about um, the book being the tip of the iceberg, it turns out, I thought it was original with me, and it turns out it was Hemingway, but there is a huge mass of things, you know, mostly um, drafts that didn't make it into the final, um, into the book itself, that, you know, research and things that and emotions and life experience that inform a book without actually appearing in it. So these things get edited out, but they're part of the base. So that was a pretty big base in the first book, being about the New Yorker and the English language. But imagine how much more territory the Greek language Formed and how many more, many, many, many more people had written about, about it before me. And I thought I had to absorb, digest all of that before I could write anything myself. And by which time I would be 150 years old and not capable of doing much of anything, I would think. So at some point, I, I you know, the editor said, enough, research, let's write it. And I had to really fall back on my faith in my own understanding and experience of the language and of the country and and draw on that and believe that somebody would that I had something interesting to say well, it was not always easy
0: all right let me let me press you about this because what struck me is that the fact that greek is so difficult is important so that you write about traveling as a tourist there and you talk about this sense of alienation that was so formative to your experience in being in a strange place did the language itself did the greek itself produce this sense of alienation that you had to fight through to uh, to get comfortable with it because once you're comfortable with the language Once you're comfortable with the people there, once you're comfortable with the country, you blossom. That's the only word I can think of to describe what the book is, I think, showing. You blossoming. And you have several scenes that I think are designed exactly to show that. Um, But is the difficulty of the language really in a way essential to the journey that you go on uh, in studying the language?
1: Well, I first felt that feeling of alienation in London. When um, you know, I didn't get to travel until I was overseas, until I was about 24, 25, and then I, my first trip was to England and Ireland because I had read so much English literature and I wanted to go to the homes of famous writers and see the daffodils of Wordsworth and all that. Um, and I had that sense of alienation in England, in in London, in my own language. You know, they would. They talked funny. <laughs> and if I couldn't could bring myself to say lift instead of elevator, because I felt like a phony and everybody knew that I was not English. So I think the sense of alienation is part of the travel experience. Mm-hmm. And as, um, and I did, I was a little worried about going to Greece because I thought if I feel alienated in London, how am I going to feel in Athens? when I can't get back home fast, you know, (laughs) and I actually traveled first. I prepared for Greek by studying Spanish and going to Mexico. Oh, I wanted, yeah, I wanted to be in a place with a foreign language where I could get home fast, (laughs) where there was no ocean between me and home. Um, so that worked out pretty well. I enjoyed Mexico and I don't speak Spanish now, but I had enough. I could, you know, it was garbled Spanish, of course, but people were kind and I enjoyed it. Um, as far as Greek being difficult, it's, you know, it's not easy, but people see it as difficult, mostly because the alphabet looks so strange and it's just a matter if you can get over the hurdle of the alphabet, it's you can sound out any Greek word. You can stare at it long, and sometimes figure out what it means <laughs> by you know transliterating it into um, an English word in your mind. You could you know, vivlio, um, beta, iota, beta, lambda, omicron, vivlio. Pronounced the B's, the betas are pronounced like Z. Now it's just where we get the word Bible, and that's so obvious. And all you have to do is learn a new alphabet, and you learned an alphabet when you were before you were in kindergarten. It is not that hard. It is not that high a hurdle. And if people would just, you know, I. I feel like an evangelist which is a Greek word if people could just get over that hurdle there the scales would fall from their eyes and they'd be able to read Greek um the hearing it and, and um comprehending it in modern times is you know that's as dif- difficult as as any language you know um Well are
0: are are, are you saying that um in your, your, your own life, you were ripe for uh, transformation, so to speak, and that Greek was just the vehicle. Um, because what strikes me is that the book is really about you as a person changing from beginning of studying Greek to the end when you do some things over in Greece, and you just uh, are, are exalted in a way by um, the changes that you've seen in yourself. And you're going to bring bring these changes back to the New Yorker and in a way be a different person. Maybe I'm reading too well, much into it, but it strikes me that it's all about you becoming who you wanted to be.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, I didn't set out to do that, but I'm glad that you got that from it. And I, I do understand that there's a progression in the book. It's not, you know, one of the early reviews of it actually said the structure was labyrinthine and i took that as a compliment i don't know that it was intended as a compliment but it's a little bit difficult to pin down how it's structured and that's because it is an inner journey and those little epiphanies are spread out through the book in a way that is a little hard to describe because some of them are some of them are in the act of traveling and some of them came through in studying and some were ancient Greek and some were modern Greek and some were English. (laughs) So it was a combination. It was not an easy book to end either, but I like the ending. I like the ending very much, but we won't give it away. Okay.
0: (laughs) So you say you were disappointed that it didn't reach as large an audience as the first book did. Did the critics have a lot to do with that? Because the impression I would have, I have not read what the critics said, My guess is that the critics went to the book expecting a different book and held that against you rather than reviewing the book that was in front of them.
1: That happened in a couple of cases, but not that many. There were just a few that, well, there was one uh, critic in England who wanted it to be about how there's, there, you know the teaching of the classics has declined and nobody studies ancient Greek anymore and he thought I should have addressed that and I didn't and so he didn't get it and so okay he want he should read something else um, but no the critics were very kind a lot of people really liked the book um, I both you know I don't it, it was a hard book it was it's hard to please everyone you know I'm not a i am not um I'm not fluent in modern Greek. I'm not a modern Greekist, and I'm certainly not a classicist, so I didn't have enough knowledge at either end to satisfy either of those extremes on the spectrum. Um, but it you know it's a book that's written for the people who have liked it best, and this gladdens my heart, are Greek Americans. They are people who want who are um, happy to see, a foreigner, a Xenia, enjoying their language and appreciating their language. They like seeing that because the Greeks don't get um, Greek Americans. I don't know that they get enough respect. Anyway, they have been really, really kind to me about the book. And you know, i got a great review in the New York Times. It was... Um, Vivian Gornick just lavished praise on it. The only thing that she said that was a little negative, because in the New York Times you have to say something a little negative, I think you're (laughs) encouraged, was that it sounded girlish at times. And that's enthusiasm. And I don't know anybody who, there was somebody else who thought I gushed, but. I would never, ever criticize anyone for being enthusiastic. You know, to be enthusiastic, that's another Greek word. It's to be filled with something from the gods. So that's not That doesn't seem
0: fair because what you were doing was uh, remembering growing up in Cleveland. And you you have a very (laughs) clear memory of what happened. And it was fascinating, the dynamics within your family, within the school system, Uh, I was actually really surprised by this idea that you learned the alphabet backwards, that you guys had a song that went with that. We're almost almost the same age. I think we're a year apart.
1: Uh, in my school, did
0: not learn it backwards. I asked my wife. She didn't in her school. Uh, My kids in Minnesota did not learn it backwards. So you must have been in this special place where they taught the alphabet backwards. That's pretty impressive.
1: Catholic school. (laughs) Well after all the success
0: with the uh, the first book you you were telling me that you had a memoir and a novel sitting on the shelf did you press for those to be published
1: well Originally of course I had a, I wrote the novel first and it was you know, I'm not good at fiction I don't think I'm good at fiction I really like truth and hard facts I have trouble even changing a name of something that you know if I want to tell a story converted into fiction I have trouble changing a name because I think the name that it came with is so perfect so the the novel was a coming of age story in New York it was a heavily autobiographical and I had an agent for it, and it got some interest, but it it was called too static. It didn't have enough change in it in, to really work, and and I didn't understand what they meant because I thought there was a lot of change in it, but it was um, internal change, mm-hmm. you know, um, kind of like a dreamscape change, I guess. So I put it aside. The memoir was about my former brother who is now my sister and she had this gender change in her 40s and I wrote about it because I thought it might be helpful to others sometime who were going through that experience to know what it was like to be a family member of somebody going through that change and um and it was very honest and I didn't always like what I was, what D was doing, or or enjoy going through it. So that one too, I, I I couldn't get any interest in. And I always thought it was because of the subject matter and because the male editors didn't want to hear about it. <laughs> but I'm sure there were other problems with it as well. So I haven't gone back to them except to. Use them to kind of mine them for material. In the in one case, the memoir of D, I just used some of those feelings in the chapter on gender. Some in um, between you and me, um, you know, the pronouns. When D was changing, I had to learn to call her her instead of him, and. It was not easy, so I wrote about that as background to some of the gender wars we're having now with the language, and I used material from the memoir to do that. So you know, I got I wrote this 180-page memoir, and I salvaged about eight paragraphs of it <laughs> and used. It. And the same happened with with the Greek book. There is in the chapter on Cyprus and Aphrodite, there's a, a passage. That is a bit of a flashback on my romantic entanglements and my um, feelings about sex, and I had been in analysis for ten to fifteen years. It's that old Woody Allen joke, you know, um, and that was part of the novel uh, that I wanted that I wanted to write. You know, the coming of age novel and getting to know yourself and getting uh, conquering inhibitions and that whole that book had a whole chapter on um, gynecology <laughs> and psychoanalysis and I condensed that into a very short section of the Aphrodite chapter in Greek to me so mm-hmm. I cannibalized my own work and now it's it's um you know it's I it was a difficult way to go about it <laughs> but I you know I salvaged a little bit from each of those attempts and there it's in books and I'm satisfied
0: well even though you haven't asked me I'm going to uh, suggest to you that uh, what your next book should be about um, and I'm basing this on the parts that really came alive in the, the two books that you've written so far I think you should write a buddy road trip novel or memoir of a sort, because some of the best bits in your books are when you travel from place to place. I'm thinking mostly of this uh, anecdote, not as an anecdote, but the story you tell about the end of, uh, between you and me about going to, is it Windsor, Connecticut, the library there? Do I have that right? Oh,
1: um, South, South, South something. Well, I have it right here.
0: It got my attention in part because I grew up in Connecticut, but... Uh, the way he d- you tell the story about this library and the money that was left, the million dollars or whatever it was, whether the town should be able to spend it or whether the mm-hmm. library should be able to spend it. And you're, the way you capture the personalities of, of these different people struck me that if you had a novel or a nonfiction book where you traveled all over the country, meeting lots of people like this, it would be a lot of fun. So that's my suggestion. Take it for whatever it's worth. But you have a real gift for that uh, that uh, thumbnail portrait of people, and that's something that's pretty hard to get, I think, to get right.
1: It's, it was Southbury, Connecticut. Southbury, by yes, the way. yes,
0: um, yeah. yes. That was a wonderful little. Uh, uh, um, was it a chapter by itself, or just a segment of a chapter? what it was pretty good. I it thought it was
1: actually it was, a, it was the epilogue. It, it, oh well, that, that's
0: that right. was,
1: yeah, that was very satisfying because um, I had a lot of material on this woman Lou Burke who was who was the the crazy like maybe you're not supposed to use the word crazy anymore but she was a scary angry woman and and she did not make good copy frankly <laughs> so it was a surprise to me I, you know something I wrote about her it turned out to work as the epilogue it got attached late in the editing process and um Well, yeah, it was a little bit of a road trip. I thought you were going to say the road trip to the Pencil Sharpener Museum.
0: Well, yes, that's even better. Uh, (laughs) um,
1: Thank you. That's a good idea. A road trip novel, you say?
0: So you you mentioned the the woman that you just mentioned, but she she pales in, in comparison with Eleanor Gould. You just want to know more and more about this woman.
1: Really? Eleanor Gould? You want to know more and more about her?
0: Well, that's the way it came across to me. I mean, she's oh, legendary. Right. She, yeah. uh, she, She's the genius, right? Yeah. She's the one who was part of Mensa absolutely. and then a sub-organization within Mensa.
1: Yes, absolutely. She was also, uh, I wouldn't say that she was frightening as so much as she was intimidating and she did not there was a woman who did not suffer fools gladly lou if you asked her a question appreciated it that you wanted to not be ignorant you ask an ignorant question well good you're facing your ignorance and you're getting past it and learning something whereas eleanor always had a bit of an attitude about is that is an ignorant question <laughs> and she would give you kind of um um Well, she looked down on you when she was answering it, I guess. So that was hard. But I have tried to pursue a piece about Eleanor Gould in more depth. I took a road trip to the place where she went to high school, East Palestine, Ohio, (laughs) which has turned into a center of paper recycling, of all things. So that Mm -hmm. seemed a little a little on
0: point, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's someone who's been reading The New Yorker for, what, 30, 40 years, I guess now. Um, sure, we all want to know more about these personalities behind the scenes. Uh, I have a certain limited interest in the writers themselves, who they, I think, declare themselves on the page. But how the magazine got to be what it is, I think, is a pretty interesting story. Especially in the last few decades, with the change in management, um, change in the editors, uh-huh. um, I'm trying to think of the, of the New Yorker book that I liked the most. There was behind the scenes book that I read that I liked a great deal, and I can't, for the life of me, right now, put my finger on it. So I'll just have to uh, pass on that. But all right, well, so I you've told you me to about some. Things. I'm sorry, I
1: my, my favorite New Yorker memoir is the one by Gardner Botsford called "A Life of Privilege," mostly, um, and it's it's part about his experience in the Second World War, but it's also part about his experience as an editor at the New Yorker under William Shawn. And it's especially interesting because it's informed by his parentage. He was the stepson of Peter Fleshman. I'm sorry, of Raoul Fleshman and the half-brother of Peter Fleshman. So he was related to the business side of the New Yorker, mm-hmm. but he was top editor on the editorial side. And I think, you know, just because he was related, there was some early on, some um Inclination not to take him, you know, it was like another mouth to feed or something, but he was a brilliant, brilliant editor. So well, I'll have to look I for know.
0: that. Uh... All right, well, covered a lot of ground, and I really appreciate your willingness to talk to me about the things that just come into my head and make me wonder about um, how things ended up on the page the way that they uh, Well that What they was do. your
1: other idea for what I should write next?
0: Well, Okay. You have a, a gift but for pulling for I was pulling wondering whether uh,
1: You said you had a couple ideas of what I should write now, um,
0: and I want them. <laughs> One of the best things about your, your writing is your willingness to expose yourself <laughs> in a good way. Oh. One of the things I liked was a little section you have about pronunciation of words and how you've uh, <clears throat> often, uh, for much of your career, mispronounced something until someone told you the correct pronunciation, or you went to the uh, Merriam-Webster website and hit the button that said, uh, um, what does the word sound like? You have no fear of ignorance, which I think is a great, great thing, because there is no reason for anyone to be afraid of ignorance, because ignorance is just a question of exposure. Um, If people mispronounce something, it's just because they haven't heard it pronounced correctly. That's all. Um, So to have you moving in a world, this is probably more of a novel than anything else, moving in a world where you're always exposing other people and their views on things like ignorance and how they're superior because they don't see themselves as having any sense of ignorance about anything, I would be, I would think it would be really funny to read. But you have a certain certain gift when it comes to characters. Um, that's why I was drawn in part to this Eleanor Gould um, woman, this character, because of uh, her it comes across as near. Disdain of the world. Disdain. For people, yes. for people like that to have their comeuppance is what I, as a reader, really like. <laughs> <laughs> no. that was
1: All right. So I was going to say that uh,
0: really uh, thank you for doing this. I have a question that uh, um, fits my own particular uh, little world of, of being a lawyer. And I wanted to ask you about that once we sign off. The way this program works or this platform works is that we actually, so I'm going to stop recording in just a minute. But we still have to be on screen with each other as the program kind of spools all the information into a final uh, file. So let me do that. I'm going to stop the recording. But let me more formally say thank you very much for spending the time uh, with me for this new Books um, new <laughs> books Network podcast. Uh, so let me do that. I'll stop the recording now. And then we'll just be on screen with each other for a little bit. All right.
1: Well, let me thank you, Bill. It's been really interesting and very flattering
0: to talk to you. Thank you. I have to ask you, don't you live in a world where people tell you wh- how talented yes. you are and how much oh, joy I you can... give them as a writer?
1: It would ruin me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I, don't I don't mind telling you that. I had hard not
1: hard
0: I had not read your books before uh, you agreed to do this. I had seen your <laughs> these wonderful three or four minute videos that you did with The New Yorker as the comic queen. And I thought, that's a woman I want to know more about. And that's why I I wrote to you. And that's why I'm absolutely delighted to have read the books. Again, I've read them two and a half times. I'll probably finish uh, them again. So I'll be able to say that I read each one three times. And the point is that each time I read them, I learned a lot more about you and about the language that I, I... I just love our language. And it's always great for me to learn anything about it. So... Oh no, no, you have you have a gift, you really do. And uh, I hope there will be a third book sometime soon. All right, so let me stop this and then I can ask you this really probing question that you probably never thought of. So here we go.